Today's passage is Romans chapter 3, verses 13 to 26, and this can be found on our Pew Bible on page 797. Hear now the word of the Lord, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit, infallible and inerrant. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, and their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. For there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe, there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Unusually attractive lady reading today. I, uh, in particular, like the song that we were singing just as an intro, Great Are You, Lord, where it says in the lyrics, um, it is your breath in our lungs. My understanding of the virus that is ravaging the world, most deadly part is that it is affecting people's lungs and their ability to get oxygen and breathe. I watched for two weeks in a ICU as the father that I loved probably more than any human being on the planet struggled for every breath that he got in those two weeks. It was ultimately that he could not breathe that took his life. And so I am grieving with those who grieve with this virus as I have watched my own father die of a similar situation. I think we should grieve with those who grieve and we should mourn with those who mourn and we should pray for them and ourselves. But I also want to say to you as a Christian, please do yourself a favor 
And do not sit at home and watch 24-hour news cycle of what is happening around the world. I think it will lead to despair and fear that will be uh, unhealthy for your soul. Instead, I encourage you to open the Word of God during these times. We have a, a sabbatical, many of us, where we can now read more and think more and pray more. Open your Bible to Philippians 4, 6. Look with me now, even, even now at Philippians 4, 6. As it relates to the coronavirus, I think Charlie gave us a good verse in Isaiah. Here's another great promise to claim for you and for your family. Starting in Philippians 4, 6, Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, even the coronavirus, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I pray that you would turn to God during this time and turn to his word and claim his promises and find peace in the midst of all of this. Now, with that opener, I want to pray for the study of our word this morning. And uh, so let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, symbolically, I hold your word over my own head because it is my belief that your word is the ultimate authority in this life, that it is inerrant in its original manuscripts, that is, it is authoritative. What it says is what we should obey and believe. We trust you to teach us from your word now through the power of your Holy Spirit. Would you use me? Would you speak into the lives of those that are here and even perhaps watching over the internet. Would you be with us now? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me um, at Romans 3. And, uh, and let's, let's look in particular at Romans 3.18. Because I believe that Romans 3.18 is such a vital passage to understanding Everything Paul has said from Romans 1.1 all the way to that point. And so when Paul gets to Romans 3.18, he says this. There's no fear of God before their eyes. He has talked first in chapter 1 about what we uh, remember as the Gentiles and their hedonistic lifestyle. He says they suppress the truth of God for a lie. And then when he gets to chapter 2, he turns the guns on the Jewish believers and he basically says, you're no better than them. You read my first chapter and you were thinking, yeah, they're terrible. And then you get to this chapter and you realize you're in the same boat. You're just a moralist and we're all in the same boat and it's a sinking ship. And that's what Paul is saying in chapters 1 and 2 and, and even into chapter 3. And when he gets into chapter 3, when he says, this is almost the explanation for it. For all of that, there is no fear of God before their eyes. 
the concept of the fear of God is all over the scripture. One particular place that you know, may know well is Proverbs 9.10. In Proverbs 9.10 it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You see, the wise person seeks God. The wise person does not, as it says in Romans 1.18, suppress the truth for any reason. Not for their desires, not because of an emotion that they have. The wise person reads and he meditates on the Word of God. Jen Wilkins, who the ladies have found helpful, and I have found helpful, frankly. She says this. I think this is really good. The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. So here's the question, Christian. Do you know the Word of God? Are you dripping with the word of God, because you have spent so much time reading, even maybe perhaps on your knees reading, praying over the scripture and asking God through the power of his spirit, Lord, speak to me. Your words are words of eternal life. Your words are the greatest words in all of the world. And to know your word is the greatest thing I could ever do. It really is. It is the greatest use of our time. But there's no fear of God before their eyes. Here's the thing. If we do not know our Bibles, we really do not know the God of the Bible. You may know a God, but it's probably more a God of your own mind. It's not the God of the Scriptures. And so we must pour ourselves into our understanding of reading and knowing the Word of God. Now, switching gears, Paul has said a lot in these first three chapters about man and about his sinful condition before a holy God. And now he's making kind of this summary statement through the Psalms. He's quoting mostly the Psalms here in Romans 3, 13 through 18. So look with me in your Bibles at Romans 3, 13 through 18. It says, their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. And then our statement again. There's no fear of God before their eyes. How could that be? How could someone not fear God? Do you remember uh, 9-11? Right after 9-11, it was almost like there was some sort of spiritual renewal, revival going on. And right now, I think a little bit for some with this virus, 
people began to contemplate some of the realities of their mortality. I think that is a good thing. But mostly, mostly to answer the question, why is there no fear of God before their eyes? It is this. The Bible speaks really clearly about this. We love darkness. Our sin nature turns from God and loves itself. And you may be thinking, I don't really love myself. That's a little strong. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says in our sinful flesh, we love ourselves more than we love anything else. So there's no fear of God in our eyes because our sin nature makes us run to the darkness and it makes us love ourselves. It takes something not natural but supernatural for anybody to actually love God. And what that supernatural thing is, is the Holy Spirit of God entering into a person and quickening, bringing to life their heart and soul. And then they begin to see the truth. This idea, though, I want to take a minute and talk about the word fearing God. It's all over the Bible. When Martin Luther, father of the Reformation, struggled with this, he made this distinction. And I hope, Cameron, you can get these words up there because they're uh, Latin words, and I probably can't pronounce them correctly, but you can at least see them. Um, Martin Luther distinguished between what he called several fear and filial fear. Several fear is a kind of fear that a prisoner in a torture chamber has from his tormentor, the jailer, the, the one that has him in jail, or the executioner. It's that kind of dreadful anxiety in which someone is frightened by the clear and present danger that is represented by this other person. And then he said, Luther distinguishes between that and what he called the filial fear, drawing from the Latin concept from which we get the idea, family. A family-type fear. It refers to the fear that a child has for his father. In this regard, Luther's thinking of a child who has tremendous respect and love for his father, or you could interchange it with mother, and who dearly wants to please them. See, one is, I'm scared of your torture. The other type of fear is a family fear that just deeply wants to please a loving parent because they've become and are the source of that child's security and love. By the grace of God, I've already mentioned my father once, but I, I had an earthly father. He died in 07, and as a small child, he was my source of security and confidence and love. Honestly, I don't know that I could have had a better father in so many ways. He believed in me. He loved me. He protected me. He provided for me. The power of that experience is remarkable in my life. My heart breaks for those who did not get that kind of care from a loving father or mother. 
But I will tell you this, and you can believe it because the Word of God says it. God promises to be a father to the fatherless. And so, there's a fear of torture, and then there's this fear of displeasing. The Christian should mostly have this fear of displeasing his father because he realizes what a wonderful father we have. But I think in our culture today, we can get flippant or cavalier with God. We kind of just casually come to him because we are invited to come and cry out to him, even as the scriptures say, Abba, Father. It's a personal, intimate way of relating to God. But don't, don't make the mistake. We're always to maintain a healthy respect and adoration for this God. Fearing God for the true believer in Christ, it's not another thing that we do. Rather, it's the way that we actually come to God. We come to God with a Psalm 58 heart that is broken and contrite. Fearing God means God in your heart and mind is so powerful, so transcendent, so holy, so awesome that you would not dare run away, but only, only run toward him. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says this. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved. So these are Christians. Paul's writing to the Philippian Christians. As you've always obeyed. Now, did they always obey? No, but when Paul was with them, they were obeying. Just like you obeyed when I was with you. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence... Work out your own salvation, how? With fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work to his good pleasure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do most Christians that you know, are they working it out with fear and trembling? Now, let me be real clear because frankly, where I'm about to go gets very unclear really fast. Working out our salvation is different than working for our salvation. Working it out is different than working for it. There's a, an evil and destructive, destructive uh, way to think about this that I think people get confused very quickly. So we should tremble, we should tremble at the thought of walking away from God's glorious benevolence. We would be bewitched by our sin or the world or Satan himself. It should cause us to fear and tremble that we would ever Walk away from such a loving, benevolent God. Hebrews 12, 25 through 29. At the end of it, well, I'm going to read the verse. 
It's talking about God and it's talking about his initial judgment and future judgment. And it says, see to it that you do not refuse who speaks, God that is. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we? If we turn away from him who warns us from heaven, at that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth. Listen to this, God speaking. I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken. That is, created things. So that what cannot be shaken may remain. I'm going to explain in just a minute. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For God, it says, is a consuming fire. This idea of they do not fear God. They have no fear of God in their eyes. And then Hebrews is saying, God is going to literally shake the earth and the heavens. And yet, many have no fear. God has judged in the Old Testament and will ultimately judge the world, he says in Hebrews, and the heavens. It says in the text, he will shake them, indicating the removal of what, he, what can be shaken. So some things can't be shaken and some things can. What are those things? His kingdom and his people cannot and will not be shaken. They are bedrock in him for all eternity. We should worship in reverence and awe, for he is a consuming fire. There's another passage where the disciples come to Jesus and they say, In your church, there's wheat and tares. Should we go tear out all of the, the weeds, the tares? And Jesus says, No, no, wait. I'll do that at the end. I'll shake it out. This is the idea. Those outside of Christ found unholy and not covered will be shaken out from the kingdom of God and consumed by the fires of hell. We should tremble. Paul here is addressing the Roman Christians in the book of Rome, Romans and uh, He's talking to them in particular as Roman Christians about things that they're stumbling over, whether it's uh, cheap grace, which they accuse Paul of teaching, which he does not, or whether it's morality. They're accusing Paul of these things, and Paul is addressing those particular things with them. And it is here that I feel I too should warn against what surely in our time and in our culture is one of the greater misunderstandings in the church. So what I'm about to try to tell you is what I believe is one of the greatest misunderstandings in the church in the United States of America, and it has been for possibly 100 years. I pray that I can do it justice. I think that the church has slipped in many cases 
into an easy believism or even what the Romans were accusing Paul of, a cheap grace. We wish for our churches to grow, like me as a pastor and you as a congregant or a member. We want our church to grow. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that if we lower some standards or some requests on people, you can probably gather a larger audience. Like many people think about church just like you think about a club. Well, I joined uh, the Atlanta Athletic Club. I didn't, but I'm just hypothetically. Um, I joined the club. I pay dues. I go. I golf. I do whatever there. I work out. You join First Baptist Church Chattahoochee, just like you kind of join a club. The truth is, that's completely unbiblical. The way we, the church works is we come and we join it by coming under the authority of the church. That's really different. I don't put myself under the authority of Atlanta Athletic Club. But a healthy church that doesn't teach a cheap grace, they come under the authority of the church and its leadership. It's all through the scripture. You could say, point to a verse. I can say, well, point to any verse that doesn't have it in it. It's, it's, it's just all over the Bible. So, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I like saying his name. Some of y'all know that name. He was a martyr. In other words, in uh, the time of the Second World War, he fought as a Christian and a professor of theology to help take out Hitler. And he got caught. And for getting caught in an assassination attempt on Hitler, they took his life. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer became a martyr. He was an author, a theologian. Listen to what he says about this idea of cheap grace. This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I think I have a, a slide. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. I don't know that I do have a slide. I'm sorry. It's baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Bonhoeffer says cheap grace is without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus. It's grace without living and the incarnate. So essentially, Bonhoeffer had identified one of the problems in the church. And he was calling it cheap grace. Now I want you to see... A contrast, I hope you see it. I'm going to give you two Gospels. Gospel 1 and Gospel 2. See how unique I am? The way I named those. Here, here Gospel 1. Sounds really familiar, frankly. God is holy. We have all sinned, separated us from God. But God sent his son to die on the cross, the cross and rise again so that we might be forgiven. Everyone who believes in Jesus can have eternal life. We're not justified by works, but by faith alone. The gospel calls all people, therefore, to just believe. An unconditionally loving God will take you as you are. That's gospel number one. See if you see a difference in this gospel, though. It sounds very similar from the start. God is holy. 
We have all sinned, separating us from God. And God sent his son to die on the cross and rise again so that we might be forgiven and begin to follow the son as king and Lord. Anyone who repents and believes can have eternal life, a life that begins today and stretches into eternity. We're not just justified by works. We're justified by faith alone. But the faith which works is never alone. Did you catch that? The faith which works is never alone. The gospel, therefore, calls all people to repent and believe. A gracious, loving God will take you contrary to what you deserve, but then enable you by the power of the Spirit to become holy and obedient like his Son. By reconciling you to himself, God also reconciles you to his family, the church, and enables you as his people to represent together his holy character and triune glory. You see, so which of these two gospels better represents what you believe the Bible teaches? The first gospel, it emphasizes Christ as Savior. The second emphasizes Christ as both Savior and Lord. Big difference. The first gospel points to Christ's forgiveness. The second gospel includes forgiveness, but also the Spirit's new work of making us like Christ. Be holy as I am holy. The first gospel points to the new status we have as children of God. The second gospel says that's indeed true. We do have a new status as children of God. And with that new status, we get a new job description that we as Christians are given to be citizens of Christ's kingdom. Our mission statement at First Baptist Chattahoochee says, we exist to spread the supremacy of God by treasuring Christ together and building laborers in the local church. Here's the key phrase, treasuring Christ together. It's not, it's not throwaway words. Those words were actually carefully chosen, not by me, but by some of the other leaders and added to the original mission statement because we realized, all of us in agreement, realized that more reflects the gospel. That we together glorify him. That a true biblical church does this together. And so, gospel number one, and this is, this is a, uh, I don't take I don't, I don't take any joy in saying this. But gospel number 1 is leading people into an eternal destruction by the thousands. I'm convinced. They sit in pews like this and they walk aisles and they get baptized and they look back on a time in their life where they became a Christian 
but their lives never changed. Nothing ever changed. And what I'm saying is, that's not a biblical faith. Biblical Christianity, when God comes in your life, he changes you from the inside out. And James wrote a whole book to say, faith without works is dead. How can you be his son or daughter and live so unholy? Look with me at James 2, 17 through 19. I'm sorry that uh, I'm emotional. It's, it's been a challenging week. James 2, 17 through 19. This is the way the Word of God reads. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works... It's dead. And what what James is saying is it's no good. It's not real faith. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You know who is not an atheist? Satan. You know who else is not an atheist? The demons. They believe more about the Bible than most of us do. And they know it better than most of us. But that doesn't make them a Christian. Some have been taught in their churches that all you have to do is believe what is true, but real faith and belief is always followed by good works, flowing out of a new heart that has been regenerated by the grace of God. So if someone is not daily seeing and savoring Christ, they likely are not his child. I don't know how else to say it. Pointing back to a time that we remember that we walked an aisle or even got baptized or had an emotional experience, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if there's no walking in truth today, would say, you had a cheap grace experience. It's not real grace, and it's not saving faith. And so fearing God is the antidote to everything Paul says about sin, both to the pagan Gentile and to the self-righteous Jew. Fearing God is the antidote to everything Paul is saying about sin and probably the most deadly and dangerous and eternal issue in our culture, in our time, is a cheap grace that doesn't lead to a changed life. And when we see people not changed, we should together help them see that. Now, look at Romans 
And I'm, I'm going to close. I'm close to being finished. Romans 3.11. It says, no one seeks God. In Romans 3.11, no one seeks God. Sin is characterized by running from God. Sin makes you forget God. It makes him unreal to you. Doesn't that recognize? That seems like our culture. God is not even real to many in our culture. It's the opposite of fearing God. So you ask the question, why do they not fear God? Sin. Sin makes us run the other way. It makes us not even think about God. So there are two ways to live our lives. Forgetting his reality or being aware continually of his reality. And then verse 13 of chapter 3, it says, Their throats are open graves. It is, only if the, it is only if the glory and love of God are unreal to you that you could lie or harm with the tongue or that you can fight with people or be willful in the heart. Now, let me say it this way. All of us do that. We all make mistakes in what we say and we hurt people or whatever. The idea here is more... Is it the trend of your life to do that, or is there repentance and faith when that happens? And if there's repentance and faith, well, then there's good works, giving evidence to a work of the Holy Spirit in your life. But if not, perhaps cheap grace. Romans 3, 19 through 20 says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Look at that. Every mouth stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What Paul's saying is it doesn't matter how good you are. You cannot be good enough. It is by grace alone. I want you to listen to how John Gerstner, in his commentary, talks about this very verse and how our goodness plays into it. John Gerstner is one of my favorite theologians. He was a mentor to R.C. Sproul and a professor. This is what he says. I think I have, I think I have it quoted. The way to God is wide open. There is nothing standing between the sinner and his God. He has immediate and unimpeded access to the Savior. There's nothing to hinder. No sin can hold you back because God offers justification to the ungodly. Nothing now stands between the sinner and God but the sinner's good works. See that? Nothing can keep him from Christ but his delusion that he has good works of his own, that he can satisfy God. All they need is need. All they must have is nothing. But alas, sinners cannot part with their virtues. They have none that are not imaginary, but they are real to them. So grace becomes unreal. The real grace of God they spurn in order to hold on to the illusionary virtues of their own. Their eyes fixed on a mirage. They will not drink real water. They die of thirst with water 
all about them. They choke on their goodness. I'm going to close with just a simple reading of the gospel. Romans 3, 21 through 26. Listen to God's word. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In other words, the law and the prophets gave testimony about Jesus who was to come and now has come. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned, Jew, Gentile. We're all in the same boat and it's sinking. And fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation for his blood. You see that word propitiation? I bet I've looked it up 742 times in my life because I can never remember what it really means. But the easiest way to remember that is that God satisfied his wrath with his blood. He satisfied his wrath with his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. In other words, in the Old Testament days, his anger, his wrath should have wiped them all out immediately. But he passed over their sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Paul basically talks all this time about sin, and then he comes and he says, and there's, here's the true gospel. The righteous shall be saved by faith and faith alone. Let me close this in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And for the gospel and for the way that you use it to Make us holy as you are holy. I thank you for uh, this time today. I pray that you would use it in our hearts and lives. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.